This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Hello, friends. Mark Lautenschlager here, just finishing up the edit in the control room with this week's episode of Out of Water. I wanted to give you a quick explanation regarding the passages that we are going to be studying this week. You'll notice that uh, when we introduce the scripture, that uh, I just jump in and start reading from verse 10, quote unquote, and you're not sure verse 10 of what. Uh, The reason for that is that uh, yours truly, when we were actually recording the podcast, misidentified the book, referring to Ecclesiastes as Ephesians. I guess I have Paul on the brain. I caught that in the edit and uh, thought I would give this little note here at the beginning just to let you know that the passages that Sam and I are looking at today are from Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 10 through 20 and Philippians chapter 3 verses 7 through 11. We do encourage you to take out your Bibles and follow along because we are doing a verse by verse Bible study as part of our series, All Things New. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, returning from summer vacation. Joining me this week is our pastor for spiritual formation, Reverend Sam Cassesmith. And Sam has been flying solo. How'd you do? How did uh, you do? Was I have fun? no idea. There might be no one listening anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. They were fine. You know, Sam finished off on his own, finished our series on the Psalms of Lament. If you missed that, we did three of them. Uh, so go back over the last three weeks and you can hear about these unique psalms and the place that they have in our uh, modern day, our current relationship to the Lord and and really something that's been missing from our culture. Uh, you know, that's mm-hmm. all idea of, of, yeah. of a psalm of lament. But uh, this week, we're moving on to pick up the series, All Things New, which is to go along with a series of messages happening right now at Rio Vista Community Church. And this is a concept that intrigued me from the very first time that you mentioned it, Sam. I remember you pitched the idea, well, it was months, months and months ago that we talked about this idea. But the idea of taking the book of Ecclesiastes and then the book of Philippians and taking common topics and looking at them in each of these two books. And and Mm -hmm. that's that's the approach. What was it about Ecclesiastes and Philippians that made you think that was that was the thing to do? Why those two books? Yeah, I think one of the when I, when I was a teacher, when I would take you know high school students through the book of Ecclesiastes, of of all the books in the Bible, this really reads <laughs> it reads like a suicide note. Almost. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to be that extreme. Oh my goodness! But it's it's basically this guy who you know for the vast 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 majority of the book is saying there's no point in anything. You know everything is meaningless in this life. It ultimately has no purpose. Um, and the reason why he is saying ultimately that it has no purpose is everything eventually gets swallowed up by the grave. Uh, no matter how much you work, no matter how much you make, what you do with your money, what you do with your relationships, everything about your life and your labor is ultimately going to be consumed by the grave. And, you know, that's an unavoidable truth, right? And so one of the things that, that the author, 
of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, as right. he's called. We, we, says, we believe it's Solomon, right? We yeah, do, yeah, we do I believe it's that. Solomon. Okay. okay. But anyway, one of the things that he establishes is, okay, he's looking at everything under the sun, and one of the things that you have to understand is he's saying, okay, under the sun assumes there's no heaven. It's, 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 there's no God. There's nothing beyond this world. Just everything under the sun that you can see and observe. If this is all there is, then it's utterly meaningless because death swallows it all or life circumstances take it away from you. You're out of control. And what, and, and you have to. There's no person on planet earth that can deny that logic. The grave is going to steal everything hmm. ultimately. Uh, but when you come to Philippians, everything that Solomon, you know, has been lamenting that if it's only the things that exist under the sun, well, money is meaningless. Relationships are meaningless. All these things in life are meaningless. But when you walk through a, a, the book of a Philippians, you know, that's, that's on the other side of the gospel and understanding what Jesus has accomplished and it goes, you know, beyond the sun. When, when that realm is opened up, all of a sudden, all of those things are flooded with absolute meaning and purpose and beauty. And so you can't go through this life with any kind of hope if you're stuck with an Ecclesiastes mindset. You know, even at the end of Ecclesiastes, it comes around and says, okay, so here's the point, you know, worship God, you know, serve God. That's the point of life. But the, almost the entirety of the book is, is pointing out the, the meaninglessness of living in a world where there's nothing more. And Philippians then opens up and says, oh, man, it's not only that there's more, but it floods everything with this beautiful meaning and purpose. Uh, so the books kind of counter one another. I think the word that I think of most when I think of Ecclesiastes is the word vanity, because mm -hmm. that's that's how that word got translated. And most of the English translations, vanity, everything's vanity. Um, and I think that that word has a, a, a meaning to us when we think of vanity, somebody who's vain, who's impressed with their appearance. But that's not the word there at all. Um, it's uh, rather uh, famously, I guess, it's the word hevel. Mm -hmm. um, and what I mean, what's the concept there when 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 he when when Solomon and the reason I asked you about whether you thought Solomon wrote it, because I'm just instinctively saying when Solomon, <laughs> I can't get in the habit of saying <laughs> when the author of Ecclesiastes or when the preacher, just like when I talk about Hebrews, I'm like when Paul wrote, uh, yeah, because yeah. I arrogantly assume that I know who wrote these things. So I'm going to say when Solomon used that word, the word that got translated vanity, what was he communicating? So the the Hebrew word there is hevel, like you said, and the the meaning behind that is is vapor or smoke. I remember lots of times I've had conversations with you where you're talking about trying to to accomplish something that's not defined. And you say it feels like I'm grabbing smoke. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and what what the author of what what the preacher is saying, what Solomon is saying here. I'll bring you around. Just, You're yeah, going to say Solomon. I just need to say Solomon. Yes. Uh, this is what happens when you go through seminary. They, <laughs> they, they destroy your brain. <laughs> but anyway, what Solomon is saying there is everything that you do in this life, if there's no heaven, if there's no God, if there's no, no eternal purpose behind anything, you know, you'll chase your, your – you'll spend your whole life chasing after money and grabbing hold of it but at the end of the day it's like smoke you open your hand and there's nothing there yeah you know you'll chase after relationships you'll chase after power you'll chase after industry and reputation and da 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 da, da. and the moment you think you've got something to, to hang on to you open your hand and it's all gone mm -hmm. um and what what 
Solomon is saying here when he says, it's all hevel, it's all smoke. Like, what are you going to go after that you're going to grab hold of that you're going to be able to keep? And the answer is, if you really stop and think about life, the grave is going to rob you of everything, mm. everything. And so it's all smoke. You're, yeah. we're, we're racing around with all this anxiety and struggle and misery and despair trying to grab hold of stuff, desperately trying to grab hold of stuff, that if we stop for a moment just to consider – it's all smoke. You can't hold it. You can't keep it. And even if death doesn't steal it away from you, just the volatile nature of life itself, everything is beyond our control. I can't control how long people I love live or how long I live. I can't control what happens to my wealth and possessions. There's, I can't – so many things that are outside of my control, yet we chase them as though we're going to be able to grab hold and keep them. And, and Solomon is saying no. Everything you chase after is smoke. Yeah. I like that mental image of as soon as you open up your hands, it's gone. You know, mm -hmm. it's like you think you have it, you look for it, and it's just not there. So the topic for this week then is money, is wealth, which is always something that uh, everybody has an opinion on. As soon as I start to mention it, my mind goes back to, uh, and it may be getting long enough now that some people listening to this podcast, although I doubt it. I think most people that listen to our podcast are probably of an age where they rec recognize the name George Carlin. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if they, yeah, if you don't, congratulations on being young, number one. Uh, and number two, and he, just know if you Google him and you'd see a YouTube video, you're going to hear some bad language. Yes. This is the comedian that did the bit <laughs> called the seven dirty words you can't say on television. So he's, he was not, he's not a pastor, was not a religious speaker. Let's just say that way. But Correct. he was a comedian and an observer of, of American society. Uh, he was really one of the great observational comics of our time. And he was frequently went after the church. He didn't think much of the church. He didn't think much of faith and Christianity and God. Um, but a lot of the things that he said were kind of biting. When you listen to them, it lets you see from an outside perspective of how people may be perceiving the church. And his joke about the church was, I went to church once and I found out that God really, really loves me. And apparently he needs my money. <laughs> that was his nice. joke. That was his joke. And yet, I think there's people out there that have that impression of the church, like the church is really all about asking people for money. Let me reassure you, that's not today's topic. We're not no. even talking about tithing or giving or anything like that. What we're talking about is your money that you have, that you use and how you feel about it, because that's really what the passage is about. So it opens up with something that just right away, you know, nails you to the wall here. He said that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So right off the bat, <laughs> mm -hmm. right off the bat, Solomon is letting you know that the thing that you love is not going to be something that satisfies you. And I think that that's a key thing in, mm -hmm. um, really in all of Ecclesiastes, wouldn't you say, this idea that uh, Solomon is talking about looking for satisfaction. It's like you mm -hmm. can't find satisfaction. You love money, money's not going to satisfy you. You love fame, you love power, you love whatever it is you love, it's not going to satisfy you. So it seems to me that the big message of Ecclesiastes is there's nothing that's going to satisfy you. And for me, the message in Philippians mm -hmm. is being in Christ is going to satisfy you regardless of everything else. Correct. And that, and that's you know the reason why we've called this this series all things new, 
Um, and this this language speaks to each other, but in Ecclesiastes, right in the opening chapter, you have Solomon, and he's lamenting that I've looked at everything. I've ch- my my brain has chased down every which possible way, you know, I could be satisfied, and nothing will satisfy. It all can be taken away. The grave will ultimately take it uh, take it away from me. I've looked for every solution to this problem, and nothing fixes it. And so he says this famous line that you've probably heard before. He says, "There's nothing new under the sun." Yeah. You know, we we say that all the time. You know, when things repeat themselves, we say, "Oh, there's nothing new under the sun," and that means that you know what has been will be again. You yep. know, everyone's going to die. It's just the same old story that we we try to you know build up meaning for our life, but ultimately, in a hundred years from now, we're going to be dead and forgotten, and our life will have very little meaning. Um, and that's a sobering thought. But in 150 years, every person who hears my voice is going to be ash somewhere, you know. Yeah. Gulp, you know. Yeah. And and what Jesus says, the great difference that Jesus makes when, when in Revelation, uh, when it's talking about the day that we stand before him and he wipes away the tears from our eyes. And one of the things that he says is, you know, if Solomon was crying out, there's nothing new under the sun, Right. Well, here comes one who's descending from beyond the sun, who's coming down from the heavens. And what is he declaring to everybody? Behold, I make all things new. Yeah. And yeah. that's the hope. Now, all of a sudden, every bit of your labor, all of your money, all of your relationships, everything else that before just fell to the vanity of death and was swallowed up and had no meaning, now, all of a sudden, by the power of the resurrection and the reigning power of Jesus, he comes in and he breathes life and purpose into everything, and now all things are new. Um now there's meaning to everything. Everything is made alive again, yeah. and there's purpose in him. And so the idea of all things being made new only happens in the power of Christ bringing his resurrection to every part of our life. Now I, there's meaning that go, that the grave cannot snuff out. Yeah. I do like what you said earlier about the, the idea that the phrase under the sun implies assuming there is no God, because I've always heard, I've always thought of the phrase under the sun as just talking about temporary humanity, uh, physical things, temporal things, things I can hold in my hand, put in my mouth, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But to understand that even further, when Solomon says under the sun, he means, and if there was no, as if there was no God, you know, assuming that God doesn't exist, because some of the things that he talks about aren't necessarily bad things, but when you don't have god in the picture i think Mm -hmm. that's where they become meaningless because some of the things that he's that he talks about in ecclesiastes on the surface of them seem to be good things he's not Mm -hmm. necessarily saying you know when he talks about i did a great job i did these great things i helped all these people i was i was wise those are all good things but without the lord without god being as part of that they become meaningless but they but they can have meaning in the proper context is what i'm getting at mm-hmm. so that was helpful to me to think about that i hadn't really heard that before that the, yeah. under the sun is not just meaning temporary but it means as if there was no god yeah so in some sense ecclesiastes at least the first <laughs> the first large portion of it is Solomon's response to John Lennon's imagine when he says, imagine there's no heaven. Okay, let's imagine that. (laughs) You know, it's all hevel. It's all just smoke. Yeah. So uh, verse 11, it goes on to say, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. 
And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? I loved this because as I was looking at this, I thought the first thing that I thought was they increase who eat them. And I thought, oh, you've met me. <laughs> um, but it is saying that basically what this is saying and we i have learned this in my own life which is the more you make the more expensive mm-hmm. it is to live um it just invariably it's like you're the 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 cost of of living seems to rise with your ability to earn and um and that's been the case it's like okay years ago 30 years ago in in my world i didn't make nearly as much money collectively my wife and i together as we make today but we didn't have two mortgages we didn't have kids we'd put through school we didn't have car payments you know we lived in a very different way and so i think solomon's making a good point here which is you think you're going to be happy if you have more money but what's going to come with more money is more responsibility you're going to have to spend that money on more stuff Um, And in the end, the only thing that you're going to have, it says here, is that he can look at them. (laughs) It's like, okay, this is like it looks good to him, but he's not going to be able to eat the money. It's like all he can do is just look at it. It's going to satisfy his eyes. And yet what what that what that sentence is insinuating, you know, when the goods increase, they increase who eat them like begins to own you. You know, the, the more the more you make, the more you're responsible, the more your expenses go up, the less freedom you have to live a nimble life because you've got all these obligations. And so your wealth begins to own you and you begin to feel trapped to. So, I mean, the bigger house I get, the bigger mortgage payment I have, which right. means I have less freedom in my job and have to have certain things to meet incomes and and after a while, you know, I'm sure there, there's a lot of people who are not boohooing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Solomon. Oh, you poor guy, you're so wealthy. Um, but what Solomon is saying is, like, I've, I'm telling you, like, I've got wealth, and what I'm telling you is, it, it doesn't satisfy. It just increases the stress and anxiety, and I don't get to even enjoy the wealth that I've created. You know, he he opens this section saying, you know, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. It doesn't fill anything. And then, you know, he who loves wealth, it's actually agricultural terms. It's like this massive harvest or storehouse is not going to be satisfied with any of his crops. So his annual income isn't enough for what he wants his wealth to be, but his wealth will never satisfy him. And so you're you're enslaved to the cycle of chasing after more that takes away your freedom to where you can't enjoy anything. You just look at it as you're striving, constantly busy to keep up this lifestyle that allows you to make money that you can never enjoy. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of wild. I, re- <laughs> I remember my dad sending me an email a number of years ago, and it was about a, a fisherman in a quiet little town in a Mexican village. And he's he's there. He goes out every day on his little boat and he goes fishing and when he comes back he cooks up the fish and they have a little fiesta together and they enjoy one another and he goes to sleep wakes up the next morning and does it again and this american tourist comes into the town and says oh man this this is amazing you you should let me help you with your business and the guy's like okay why and he says well if if i could get another boat then you could go out and get double the fish then you could sell the other side of the fish and with the profits from those fish then you could buy a bigger boat and then you could go out and get even more fish and then you could buy a bigger boat and then eventually you could have a fleet of boats and the the fisherman looks at the uh, the American entrepreneur and says, okay, why? And he says, well, if you get enough money, eventually you'll just be able to, to live in this quiet town and wake up every morning and go out on your boat and fish and have parties with your friends. And, you know, it's like, 
he already had that lifestyle, <laughs> you know, and this, our idea is we got to grow this business so that we can make a whole bunch of stuff and have a whole bunch of stuff so that we can enjoy life. And where, where Solomon goes next when he says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, you know, here you have this titan of wealth who's looking at the fishermen and saying, oh, what I wouldn't give to not be enslaved to all these possessions, to have that freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's interesting because, you know, the poor people, you know, the poor person is looking to the wealthy and saying, oh, what I wouldn't give to have that kind of freedom. And here you have the, <laughs> the wealthy person who's looking to the ordinary laborer saying, oh, what I wouldn't give to have that kind of freedom. Sure. Well, I mean, um, Solomon goes on to say that. He says, uh, whether he eats little or much, this laborer, he said, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And that's mm. not talking about, you know, GERD or heartburn or, you know, that's not that's not what that's saying. What that's saying is that the pressure of that full stomach is, the, mm-hmm. is that all of the all of the worries and all of the concerns and all of the issues and problems that come with being the person who's responsible, who's in charge. You're the big kahuna. You're the big cheese. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And it is true because that's the other thing that I can tell you from my own personal experience. Now, Hey, look, I work for a church. I'm not a titan of industry. Uh, <laughs> you know, my wife's a lawyer. She's closer to being a titan of industry than I am. But but neither one of us really are. Um, and yet there are times where we talk about our lives and as we, we call it this furnace and we talk about feeding the furnace and this idea that we bring in money and it's just like we shovel it into this mm-hmm. furnace all the and and. I'm going to be, I mean, I feel good about the fact that um, our income rising over the years has enabled us to be generous. We're very mm-hmm. faithful with our tithe, um, you know, and I've said this wasn't going to be talking about giving, but that's part of our life is part of, is, is part of giving. Um, that's a fun part of making money is the it, ability it is. to be generous. It is. And one of the things that we've done as a couple is we've committed to the tithe and committed to be generous beyond that. And it's kind of funny that she, uh, Tracy told me that she was in a conversation with two other attorneys at her office one day, and one of them knew her a little better than the other one and the one the one that didn't know her as well was making comments about christians and tithing and giving and so forth like that and the the other attorney that knows tracy a little better said uh tracy tithes and (laughs) and the first guy looks over goes on the gross and tracy said yeah and he went oh (laughs) Um, because that is a thing that uh that the you know the the world looks at the church and says if you you know what do you really believe about money and the value of money and the value of what your church is doing and the value of god in your life um and that's one of the ways that we demonstrate it is we say hey lord you know you get a tenth of everything that comes in the door right up front before taxes deductions anything else it's wonderful that you let us live on the 90% that's left, you know? Uh, and then we look for opportunities to be generous beyond that. We've had several opportunities where we've been able to be generous at the church or school or to family members or people in need in a really significant and impactful way. Um, and so we talk about the furnace that we feed this furnace. And there are times when, uh, I just worry, you know, you worry about what happens if you run out of fuel. (laughs) Is the the furnace going to burn you for fuel then next, you know? And so there are nights where we end up being awake at night thinking about the what ifs. Yeah, and I think there's, you know, you you look and there's all these trends of people downsizing and living in miniature houses and getting rid of all their stuff that's kind of this cultural knee-jerk. It's not even a gospel thing. It's just, 
I'm tired of being enslaved to all my stuff. You know, every time Laura and I ever move houses, it's like, why do we have all this? <laughs> you know, but what in the, really, it begins to enslave you. It begins to control you. And so, you know, there's a, there's a mindset and we measure success so often in our society of how successful a person is by how much money they make and how much money they've accumulated. And it will never, ever satisfy and Mm -hmm. the more you make it you know the ultimate prize the more it begins to master you (laughs) you know all of a sudden you find hold on a minute this money was supposed to support me but now i'm finding that i'm a slave that's bowing my entire life to worship at the altar of money so that i can get more of it and all of a sudden you find you're the slave and it's the master and that's when it this is what Solomon's talking about. Like there's all you can do is just look at it with your eyes, but it doesn't reward you. You don't feel satisfied by it. You just need more and more and more and more. And it's owned you. Verse uh, 13. He goes on to say, there is a grievous evil, which by the way, that made me sit up. I I, I have this, my study technique these days is uh, because I'm like iPad man. Now Uh, my study (laughs) technique these days is I, I grab the PDF of the passage and put it into a note taking program. And then I get to highlight and write notes in the margins and it's all colorful and it looks very cool. Mm -hmm. And it just demonstrates that I have terrible handwriting, but it's, (laughs) but it's, well, it's useful because I, I do find that when I write handwrite my notes like this on the iPad, I remember them better. I don't, although ironically, I forget what type of memory that's called. There is a type of memory that says if you handwrite it, you remember it better than if you type it. So uh, that was something that I immediately jumped on and highlighted. When Solomon says there's a grievous evil, I'm like, ooh, grievous evil that I have seen (laughs) under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Um, And that struck me because. You know, I just mm-hmm. talked about feeding the furnace. Mm-hmm. One of the things that that we talk about, my wife and I talk about, is that um, it's not that we're not saving for retirement. We are. We're going to be fine. But um, not a lot of our money stays in our hands. You know, it, it comes in the door and we do things with it. You know, we 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 pay for expenses. We we're generous and give some of it away. We put some for retirement, but we don't hoard our money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought about that. That this idea that hoarding your money is something that would be to the to his hurt, you know, mm-hmm. we always encourage people save you, know, you got to do your saving and everything else. But there's a difference between saving and this kind of hoarding, I think, mm-hmm. you know, I being a pastor, I've done marriage counseling for a number of years here mm-hmm. at Rio Vista. We live in a, in a fairly wealthy neighborhood. And so. You get a lot of people who own their own businesses and, you know, I won't betray anybody's confidence because there's multiple people who've had the same problem. I can speak in generalities, but a couple will come to me and what you'll find is the wife feels like she's being totally ignored, like their family life is falling apart. And, you know, you look across, you know, to the other chair and there's the husband and he's saying, but I have to give my life to this business because if I let my foot off the gas Everything's going to come crashing down and everything's going to fall apart. Uh, and so I have I, ca- I have no choice but to keep pushing the gas pedal down, even when it means that I'm not seeing my wife and I'm not investing in my marriage and I'm not there for my kids. I've got to make the money. And so, you know, because they see that I've got to make a lot of money to sustain this life that we've built and, and you know, what I think one of the things Solomon's getting at here where he says riches are being kept by the owner to their hurt is, 
you have people that get caught in the slavery of having to sustain this lifestyle, sustain this wealth, and around them they feel totally stuck and they're watching their marriage fall apart and they're watching their children's lives, you know, they're they're missing out on parenting and you know, I I can sense that in my own life where it's like, you know, when I when I especially when I was the headmaster, it's like you can't let your foot off the gas. Like you have to do these things. You have to address the fires. You have to be there. And you start feeling like, I don't have the freedom to walk away from this anymore because my life might fall apart. And so, and serving the paycheck and serving the wealth, you know, everything else around you is falling apart at the mm. seams. And in a couple of cases, you know, these husbands have downsized their business in order to make time for their homes. And they've, I've never had anyone regret it. Mm. Um, and, and both of the cases that I'm thinking about right offhand, their marriage flourished and, you know, they were able to show not only their God, but their wife and their kids, I'm not going to be a slave to this. Even if it means we might have to have a smaller house, it means we might have to back off of, you know, things that we're purchasing. I'm going to make priorities in my life that should be high priorities, the right priorities and right. not slave to make money. Um, but man, we do that. Yeah. And Solomon predicts the outcome of that in verses 14 through 16 here. He says, and those riches, the riches that this owner, this, this rich man is hoarding, were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. That was the number one thing that you did for your children was to provide for them and to leave a, a, a legacy for them, generational wealth. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. And then verse 16, this is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? And I think that that's the, mm. you know, I mean, his his predicted outcome is that when what you do is you become concerned about that stockpiling of wealth, that hoarding of wealth. That can all disappear in an instant. And then what do you have for your family? For In this case, he talks about for his son, but also just this idea that there was such a pressure on uh, in in the world of Solomon. What the head of a, of a household did was provide for the household, not just during his life, but also going forward. Mm-hmm. It was a big deal. Give me what you give me my inheritance. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he's saying here is when you know that that the outcome of that is it's all gone then you really honestly are left with nothing yeah and there's a, in the hebrew i think one of the things that about this passage that we just read starting in verse 13 uh, when it says that riches were kept by their owner to his hurt and those riches were lost in a bad venture one of the one of the alternative translations of that word owner is baal baal uh, where you know, and it, it literally can mean husband, and so it can mean owner, husband, got landowner. There's different meanings that come to that. So there's there's kind of this relational meaning to that word. Where okay, you it's like you're almost the husband to these riches, and they've all left you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, they're they're going to leave you, and that starts hitting all these other relational components. So you've made you've made your your chief relationship has been your riches. And they've left you, and then it starts hitting, okay, and now you're a father of a son who has nothing to hand off. You, you've, you've squandered that. And mm-hmm. so now, just as you were a son of your mother coming out of the womb, you had nothing, you're right back there again. Um, 
and it's for nothing. It's yep. for nothing. It's this grievous evil. And the word evil, and it's going to make a transition here in a minute, but that word evil, which is ra in, in the Hebrew, is in the garden where you had the tree of the knowledge of good right. and evil. Mm-hmm. This is that same word. Mm. And where he's going to turn in verse 18, where he says, but I have seen good. So he's going to turn, and that's going to be um, the word tov, which is the same word that you find and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, you know, we're getting back to the basics. Here's good and evil. And what's evil? It's chasing after riches that you know ultimately are going to sift right through your hands and you're going to have nothing to show for it. And the most important things in your life will have been sacrificed for the pursuit of it. Mm. And he says that's a grievous evil. Well, before we get to the uh, turn there in verse 18, he leaves us with verse 17, which is describing what this what this guy's life is going to be like. And there was that awareness that you're toiling for nothing. He says, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. And it's like, you know, it's this. I will say this one thing is true. I have never met anybody for whom they're their preoccupation and their every thought was about their fortune and the and the creation and pr- preservation of their fortune mm-hmm. um, i mean I've, I've i've had the privilege of knowing a few wealthy people and the ones to me that are just really kind of occupied with the creation and control and perpetuation of wealth i've never known one of them to be happy yeah. I've never known one of them to be it's like they just there's they're they're angry, they're they're short tempered, they're stressed stressed all the time, you know. And and I've also met some for whom money didn't seem to really touch them. It's like they were just, yeah, it's you know, yeah, we've got money, it's good that we have money. Mm-hmm. Um but their their whole outlook is is different. So this guy who is uh who's hoarding or keeping this the, his riches to his hurt part of that hurt is how he's going to live his life being devoted to his riches whether or not he loses them he's going to have a lot of he says vexation and sickness and anger mm-hmm. not a yeah. not a pleasant guy to be around not a pleasant way to live i agree i don't know where to go with that <laughs> yeah. i think there's a lot of people who because the reality is you you do have to provide for your family right um and and that's a good a thing. That's a good totally. thing. Yeah, absolutely. There's a difference between fulfilling your duty to care for your family and going beyond what's essential to care for your family and pursuing wealth for the sake of wealth, mm-hmm. where everything else bows before that. And you've got to chase, you know, the the dream of of getting the bigger house and the bigger car and competing against the neighbors and building the biggest business and everything else. You know, when you do that, when you're bowing the knee to that dream and everything else around you begins to suffer as a result of it, you find that you are a slave. Mm. And it's hard to walk away from it. Yeah. It's mastered you. Now, Solomon does move on to give us something that he says that he has seen to be good and fitting. He says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart." Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think Solomon's getting at there? Is it just this idea that the person recognizes that what he has is coming from God? He sees these things as being from from his God, or or is there something else 
Is that just the surface reading and I'm not going deep enough? Yeah, I, so there's I, this might be a little bit tangential from from what Solomon's getting at. Mm-hmm. But I think what he's saying here is, you know, there's a real blessing. It is a good thing for somebody to be able to accept the lot that God has called them to in life. Mm. Um, and, and so like one of the differences between my generation that's, you know, today versus my dad's generation back in those days, you know, to make a living was seen as something that was really honorable and it didn't matter what you were doing. You know, if you were making a living as a tradesperson, if you were a plumber, an electrician, if you were, a, you know, you owned your own business or whatever, you know, there was a deep level of, of respect and worth and value in any kind of livelihood. That's and very people, true. And people left those, you know, they left and they felt like, okay, that was a good day's work and I'm going to go home and I'm going to spend time with my family. And now we tend to look down on things that are not white collar. And and so I think one of the things that Solomon is getting at is when you can look at your work and say, you know what, this is the blessing, not, you know, I'm discontent because I'm not making a million dollars a year, but I can accept the toil that God has given me and find enjoyment in it and mm-hmm. find that it's a blessing from God no matter what it is. You know, that is truly a key to life. You know, because there's the the level of of anxiety in our generation, particularly, you know, with millennials and those coming up behind them, is you know, the moment you graduate out of college, you think to yourself, well, my, uh, if I'm going to be a valuable person, I need to be the CEO right out of the gates. I need to make this mammoth difference, and that can't happen if I'm a, a janitor. And and I, and I I say that understanding that's an offensive comment because a, a janitor, every every single vocation under the sun, if you're a Christian. Is a, is a divine calling. It's, it's noble. The lot that God has given you, he's called you to these tasks, and all of them are beneficial in the kingdom of God. But, I, but I'll tell you a story that happened with my son Caleb, you know, that, that really kind of hit me right in the heart. We were sitting in the living room, and I was reading or researching something, and Caleb was over in the, on the couch right across from me. Everything's quiet in the house, and he says, hey, Dad. And so I lower my, the book I was reading at the time. And I look over at him, and he says, I'm kind of scared. And I said, what do you mean, Caleb? What are you scared about? And he says, I think I'm going to be a failure in life. Wow. That's just, he was 10 years old at the time. Wow. So my 10-year-old son, who's fresh into fifth grade, looks at me and says, Dad, I think I'm going to be a failure in life. And you want to talk about cutting you to the bone, yeah. you know, hearing that come out of your son's mouth. So I said, why do, you, why do you feel like you're going to be a failure in life? And he says, well, I just, I don't think, you know, because I'm, I don't get the best grades and I, I don't, I just don't think that I'm going to be, I don't think I'm going to be rich. I don't think I'm going to make a lot of money. I don't think I'm going to be able to get all the nice stuff. And we just stopped for a moment and had kind of an Ecclesiastes Philippians conversation. And, I, you know, I was talking with him. I said, you know, do you think that success is based on what you become? Let me tell you how God defines success. And we had this really, really wonderful conversation that success is not about how much money you make or what title you go after or what college you go to. It's none of that stuff that our society has so seared into this younger generation. Success is treating other people kindly, loving other. When when Jesus is asked the question, you know, what are the two most important measures of a successful life? What what are the two greatest commandments? Right, man, to love God 
and to love others. And the reason behind that, and I think I've said this before in one of the other episodes, you know, every other thing in the entire universe is going to be lost at the grave. Everything, money, house, car, job, all of it is going to be lost at the grave. There are only two things that you invest your life into in this world that have eternal consequences. One of them is your relationship with the Lord. That's an infinite, eternal investment. And the other one is how you pour into other immortal, eternal creatures that are living right alongside you, these other people, how you love them. That will go on and have eternal consequences. The size of your house doesn't matter a hill of beans once death swallows you up. Mm. Like everything else is lost. And so I said, you want to talk about what makes a successful life, Caleb? Look at your heart. Look how tender you are. Look at what a great friend you are. Look at how much you love God. Like you are living a tremendously successful life, son. I don't want to ever hear you fear that not getting all the junk of this world means you're not successful. Do you hear me? And he lit up like Mm. a Christmas tree with delight, and it freed him. You know, in that moment, and then all of a sudden he's filled with joy and he's talking a million miles an hour and coming, <laughs> you know, over to my side of the room. Adults need to hear that because, you know, it, it might be a little bit more obvious and, and frank coming out of a 10 year old's mouth and you go, oh, my goodness, what a terrible way to view life. There are a lot of adults who are walking around feeling absolutely enslaved or like they don't measure up or like their life is a failure. Because why? Because they're not storing up. Right. And then there's those that have stored up that are finding, you know what, it's pretty empty. Mm. And we've got to get away from this idea that the measure of a person is how much money they make or what kind of outfit they wear to work. No, there is great dignity and blessing and being able to accept the lot and the talents that God has given you and living them out and whatever job he's called you to. That is the beautiful life. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, you're right. More adults need to hear that. But I also think more of us adults need to communicate that to our children. Big time. Because I think that a lot of them grow up, you know, without that. Oh, I was convicted in that moment that yeah. this had taken such a deep root in my son's yeah. heart. Yeah. You know, to where he's walking around at 10, fifth mm-hmm. grade, fearing life because he always, he already feels like he's set up for failure. That took root in my home. Like how in the world, like, and I need to be diligent about communicating to my kids. You know, it's not about getting the the 4.0. It's not about getting into the Ivy league school. It's not about becoming a CEO by the age of 30. It's not about making millions of dollars. Like here's what's important. Here's how you define a successful life. Right. It's, it's humility. It's kindness. It's the fruit of the spirit. It's pouring your life out for the Lord and for others. That's a successful life. And there is no one who gets to the final moment of their life and says, Oh, I wished I'd have made more money. You know, yeah. uh, they all look and l- if they've devoted their whole life to chasing money, they're, they lament the fact that they've wasted their life mm-hmm. being enslaved to this master that is all sifting through their hands now. So let's take a look at what Paul says in Philippians on this subject. Um, this is from Philippians chapter 3. Um, and it's verses seven through eleven, and there are some actually very famous verses in here. Things mm-hmm. that things that show up on a lot of refrigerator magnets. Um, <laughs> but it says, "But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ." 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When I read this, of course, the first thing that I thought was that Everything that Paul had achieved, and which were which were considerable achievements, you know, whatever gain he had, he was, you know, he was in the top strata there mm-hmm. in his culture. He was a Pharisee. He was, mm-hmm. you know, tremendously well educated. I'm going to assume wealthy. Um, you know, well, you know, he's wealthy because we're told that he's a Roman citizen, and to be a right. Roman citizen, you had to have wealth to yeah. purchase that. And you know that he, so he would have had the Ivy League education of his day because he was trained by the top rabbi Gamaliel. And so, like, he's got the best of everything, and he's on a path, a trajectory with his job where he's going to be the best of the best, the leader of leaders. He's on that trajectory, and, and he, he walks away from it. He walks away from it, and the, the to me, the punchline, the most powerful thing is, like, I highlighted through here, I had a loss as loss, <laughs> loss of all things, loss, 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 but then, and count them as rubbish. And that's really, like, the polite word for mm-hmm. it. The, the actual mm-hmm. word in the Greek there is, like, poop (laughs) let's just be clear it's poop he's saying that everything that i had is like poop compared to the value of what it is to know jesus christ Mm -hmm. scubulon is the is the greek and it's it's poop it is you know so (laughs) you know solomon is going to call it vapor or a cloud Paul gets a little more real. It's little, poop. It's poop. It, it doesn't know? just disappear from your hands. It leaves a nasty rev- residue. Yes. <laughs> you know? And and so that's what you know when he when he sets up the scales, the weighs the scales of of everything that I have in my life, comparing that to the, the value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I regard all these amazing things: that Ivy League education, the wealth, the Roman citizenship, everything else. I look at that as being dung as poop as mm-hmm. rubbish um that's a powerful statement to me i mean it's it's uh it's a powerful perspective on the value of temporary things versus the value of permanent things um and then when he goes on and says uh that i mean he he makes a great gospel statement found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in christ the righteousness from god that depends on faith but then he says that he may know him and the power of his resurrection. Uh, mm. And he goes on to say that he may, he wants to attain the resurrection from the dead. This is something we've talked about before, too, which is, um, you know, modern day Christianity seems to park itself out the cross a lot and mm. talk about the sacrifice and the payment and the forgiveness. And those are great things. And we should do. We should. That should be a centerpiece of our faith and our belief and understanding. But it was this idea of resurrection. That was so motivating to the people in Paul's time and to Paul here himself, you know, that because that's where he saw the the power of Christ demonstrated was in Christ's resurrection. And that's the same kind of power he wanted to see working in his life. And that mm-hmm. to him was worth more than all the wealth he could have would mm-hmm. be to have the kind of power that could bring a man back from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's. Yeah. And. The thing that what Paul is setting up here that that scratches the itch that we still have, you know, 2,000 years after Jesus, we still have this idea. You know, we're chasing after things that we consider to be our treasures. And what Paul is saying is, oh, my Lord, Jesus is so much more satisfying than any of the rubbish that I had to leave behind. Like he – I want you to imagine for a moment God – 
values you so much that he took on flesh, came into this world, took your sin, died on a cross, and issues his this promise that if you would just come to him and surrender in faith to him, then he's got this glorious inheritance that you can't even begin to imagine that's in store for you, that he's going to that he's going to dwell in you, that his spirit comes in and makes you alive, that he's going to pour out all these blessings on you. Now you know, money never died for you. Your career never died for you. Power never died for you. But here you have the God of the universe who died for you. And when you look at that, that treasure, that value, that beauty makes everything else look so petty by comparison. If this is the treasure I have, what other treasure can compete with that truth? Right. It's not bank accounts. <laughs> you know, they look really stupid next to the God of the universe coming to a cross to spare me from death and to promise me an inheritance that I can't even wrap my mind around. But you have to see Jesus as the greater treasure sure. in this life. And Paul is like, are you kidding me? It, everything else next to him, it looks like poo. Yeah. But then he adds something that this generation really needs that I love here. As Paul says, okay, and so I have this greater treasure that makes everything else look like poo. But then he stops and he says that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Every other one of these treasures that we chase after, right? You know, you're slaving away. It's your effort and it's never good enough. You always have to slave and strive for more and more and more and more. You know what you get to do in Christianity? Your righteousness, your inheritance, your covenant with God is not about how hard you strive. So all of a sudden, everything else that's enslaved you and making you chase and, you know, just, oh, if I, I got to do more, I can't, I can't let up. I've got to chase and chase and chase. Now all of a sudden, Paul comes and says, not only do I have the greater treasure in Christ, but the slavery's over. It's not my righteousness that affords me this inheritance. So I don't have to wake up every morning, you know, on, on pins and needles wondering if this inheritance is going to slip through my fingers anymore. It's not, it's no longer hevel. It's not smoke because it's been secured by him. He mm-hmm. has secured it on my behalf by going to the cross, by defeating death. He's given it to me as a gift. And all I bring to the table is this surrender and faith. And now I don't have to wake up every morning going, I wonder how my inheritance is doing. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And so not only do you get the better prize when you fix your eyes on Jesus, but it takes away the the anxiety and the stress of wondering if your great treasure is going to slip mm-hmm. through your hands because it's not about your efforts anymore. Yeah, It's just your heart give, yielding to this great treasure, Jesus, and everything is yours. Yeah. And I think, too, is that we we think about wealth as be, equating to power. People equate mm-hmm. wealth to power. Like, oh, if I'm wealthy, I'm powerful. We even hear it. It's like the phrase, the wealthy and powerful. Like, the two things just go together. If you have wealth, by definition, you have power. And what Paul is saying here is, you want power? Let's talk about the power of his resurrection. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about power that brings a man back from the dead. Because you know what? Your money never died for you. Your money never went to the cross for you. The other thing your money will not do, it will not bring you back from the dead. 
If you want the power that can bring you back from the dead, that's only found in one place. That's found in Jesus. And your money isn't going to do it. You can invest all you want in your cloning and your cryology, or, you know, cryonics or whatever, <laughs> cryogenics. You can dump everything that you want into every, you know, man-made way to try to cheat death. Doesn't help. Your money is not going to be able to, that's, it doesn't have power there. There is only one person that has power over yeah. death. And that's, you know, Solomon through Ecclesiastes is he's saying, you know, the great enemy is the grave. It is going to steal everything. And and in Philippians, Paul is going, oh, really? <laughs> Let me introduce you to the one who has the power over the grave. Yes. And when you share in the power of his resurrection and you're raised, all of a sudden, your life on this side of the grave is not so meaningless. Yeah. It's not swallowed up. It's, it's, it's not made meaningless by the grave. It goes on. Yeah. It it goes on. There's consequence to the to your life now. I used to, I told my wife once. I said, when the worst thing that can happen to me is that you send me to my room early, it takes <laughs> away your power. You know, if the worst thing that can happen to me is Mark, you're going to die, and that's the worst thing. It's not the worst thing because you're just sending me to my room early. You know, mm-hmm. it's this idea that you know when the grave is no longer this looming thing that is threatening to take away everything that you've ever done and been and become, then it's just, it's the, it doesn't have, Paul says elsewhere, you know, death wears your sting. It's like, it takes away the, the pain, the sting, the, of death. Mm-hmm. Um, and that mm-hmm. is something that that's real power. That's real freedom. You can have the freedom of money, but this is real freedom. Well, we'll let that stand as our last word for this week on the subject of money and wealth uh, from both Solomon and from Paul. We hope that you've enjoyed this. This is part of the All Things New series, comparing and contrasting from the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Philippians, a series of messages going on right now at Rio Vista Community Church. We encourage you, if you're uh, not part of our church, if you're not hearing those messages each week, to come to our website at riovistachurch.com or get our smartphone app. Just go to the uh, Apple App Store or the Google Play Store and search for Rio Vista Community Church. You can find our app there and uh, listen to the messages as well as continuing to follow uh, this podcast. You can find all the back episodes of Out of Water at our website at riovistachurch.com slash out of water or by looking for us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and on Google Play. We're going to be back next week with another in the series All Things New and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.